Well, hi, if you're new and visiting, my name's Riley. Thanks for coming out on Good Friday evening for our church service. It's one of the unique um, services we get to do in a year because normally we meet in the morning, and so it's kind of fun to be out late at night. And we get two church services this week, so it's my favorite holiday in the year because we get more church um, and more chances to reflect upon uh, the amazing message of Easter. Uh, but Easter can be also a little bit of an interesting and a bit of a weird time uh, because, yeah, you can take it off the screen for the moment. I'll read it a bit later. Because, like, on a day like today, Good Friday, if you were down at Waitara, we had this massive celebration. Um, and I think I've got a photo up there on the screen. We had 800 kids and thousands of people running around, and we had chocolate being handed out. We had an Easter bunny walking around. We had sausage sizzles and face painting and helium balloons and... You know, it made it look like Good Friday. Uh, but if you stop and think about Easter itself and the whole message of Easter, it can actually be a little bit confusing when you put all the images together. Because what are the main two images we have of Easter? The Easter bunny and a cross. It doesn't really make much sense. You've got a cute bunny that brings chocolatey goodness and a Roman instrument of torture and death. And when you slow down and think about it, you think, what, why? Why does this happen this weekend? Why do we get four days, a massive long weekend, a, a great time to rest and relax, to think about a Roman cross and a bunny that lays chocolate eggs? I mean, bunnies obviously don't lay eggs. How did that even happen? The reality of Easter is that it can pass by so quickly. It can be actually a little bit confusing unless you stop and think about it. And in fact, not just thinking about it, unless someone stops and explains the meaning of Easter to you. You see, if you look upon the cross and you look at a picture perhaps in a church or something like that of Jesus dying on a cross and you knew nothing of the Easter story, say you're an alien dropped into earth and you saw it, you would think, how could a half-naked Middle Eastern man from 2,000 years ago being killed in a really humiliating and public way have any relevance to me and my life today in our industrialised, civilised society? How could the crucifixion of this man be good news? Why do we get a whole holiday to celebrate it? Why is it called Good Friday? The reality is you could stare at that picture. You could look at Jesus on the cross for hours and hours and hours and you'd never understand. You'd never know what it truly meant unless someone explained it to you. And that's why we're here tonight. Because God's word is the explanation of what happened. We're going to read tonight an explanation from one of the writers of the Bible called Matthew, and he's going to explain to us what happened on Good Friday and why it's good. You see, when Jesus died upon that cross 2,000 years ago, people were very confused. People didn't really know what was happening. You wouldn't be able to figure it out. It's too confusing for the natural mind. And upon the cross, Jesus actually cried out seven last words. 
You know, our final words are some of, you could imagine, the most important words you say. And Jesus cried seven last things from the cross. Things like, it is finished. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. But Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, he only records one cry from the cross. You see, Matthew is painting a picture. He's telling the story of Easter, being selective, and he only chooses one cry because he wants to focus in on one message for Easter. And it's the paradoxical message as to why Easter is Good Friday. Let's read the cry, the one cry that Matthew highlights in on that Jesus yelled from the cross. We've already heard it read this evening. Verse 45 in Matthew chapter 27. Now, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land. So that's, nine, uh, that's 12 p.m. Darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, sabachthani, lema sabachthani, which is in Hebrew, and that means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a chilling cry. Good Friday? Forsaken? How does it all work together? Well, tonight we're going to uncover that in three points. Forsaken by man, forsaken by God, and forsaken for us. And by the end of it, we're going to see why it is Good Friday today. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we're aware that We're not worthy to come to you in this moment in and of ourselves. I'm not worthy to preach this evening or any other time. Because of me, because of us, this had to happen. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this evening, would you open our hearts and our minds to understand and see what you have done for us. Lord, we've heard this message potentially so many times. Make it fresh again, in Jesus' name, and for his glory. Amen. Point number one, forsaken by man. I don't know if there's ever been a time in your life where you have felt utterly alone or abandoned or perhaps worse, betrayed, forsaken. You see, that word that Jesus cried from the cross, forsaken, means to be abandoned, to be left behind, to be deserted. I don't know if you've ever experienced a time when you felt that low, dark point. To understand how Jesus got there, we're going to retell the Easter story 
so that we can enter back into the narrative. And as we retell the events leading up to that ninth hour, sixth hour, we're going to see how Jesus was forsaken by everyone. You've heard this story many times, but as we go, I want you to place yourself in those dusty streets 2,000 years ago. You see, Jesus was born those 2,000 years ago with a, a bright array of angels, a star at night. We know the Christmas story well. And then for basically 27 to 30 years, he lived in obscurity until he was launched into public ministry, being baptized by John the Baptist. He went off, was tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and then began teaching, preaching, and healing for three years. Wherever Jesus went, the crowds came. People came to get healed from blindness and deafness and, and from all types of injury. And people came to get healed of their sin. They realized that this man was not just good, but he was God. But not everyone thought that about Jesus. Many people thought that uh, he was actually a heretic. Many people thought that he was there to stir up trouble. And so over these three years, the crowds come and the adversaries come, and it's a confusing time in Israel's history. And then we zoom back in to one week before Good Friday, Palm Sunday. And on that Sunday, we see an incredible scene. You see, what happens on Palm Sunday is that Jesus is finally heading to Jerusalem. He has said for three years, I'm heading to Jerusalem, and there something's going to happen. And he makes his way onto Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And as he goes in, it's a really peculiar story because the people are somewhat waiting for him. They've heard of this Jesus character, and they think the king of Israel is coming to renew the land. And so they lay their cloaks out before him. And in Matthew, um, he says this. This is what the crowds cry out. Just one week before Easter. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he, that is Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Jesus then, for the next couple of days, enters Jerusalem and engages in some pretty interesting teaching that gets people riled up. He even goes to the temple and clears out the temple. He knocks over tables and drives out livestock because the temple had become this marketplace. And in that time, some people were drawn to him, but some people were definitely drawn away from him. Men started to conspire against him. In Matthew chapter 26, we read that the chief priests and the Sadducees actually conspired that now, secretly, they were going to kill him. Enough was enough. Time to get rid of this man, this troublemaker. But how are they going to do it? Because the crowd loved him. Along comes Judas. See, Judas was one of Jesus' close friends, one of the 12 disciples. Yet something had happened to Judas. Judas had become with, overcome with greed. And so Judas comes to the chief priests and the scribes and says, I can give you Jesus. Judas uses his privileged position as on the inner circle. He knows where Jesus is going. He knows what Jesus is doing. And he says, I'll hand him over to you. And they pay him 30 pieces of silver. And the plan sets into motion for Good Friday. 
Two days after this happens, Jesus has taken his disciples into the upper room, what, what we know of as the Last Supper. And again, it's another confusing scene. There's no servant there to wash their feet, and so Jesus, the master, the teacher, gets down with a towel and starts washing his own disciples' feet, including Judas. And then Jesus performs this interesting ritual. He, he takes some bread and he says, Take, eat, this is my body. And verse 27 of Matthew 26 says this, And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The disciples, they don't really understand what's happening. They're, they're thinking along with the crowds, here comes the king. He's coming. He's the king. He just came in on the donkey with everyone with the hosanna and the palm leaves and the, the clothes on the ground. And here he is saying, this is my body and this is my blood. Jesus takes them from the upper room. He knows what's about to happen. And he, he takes them to the garden. And in the garden, he says to them, you're going you're gonna to betray me. You're going to leave me. And Peter, one of the bold disciples, stands up and says, I will never betray you. And Jesus says, three times you will deny me before the rooster crows. And he gathers a couple of his disciples. He goes into the inner garden and he begins to pray. Many times in Jesus' life, he prayed. Many times he would go to the desolate place to pray on his own because he loves God. God the Son loves God the Father, but this time his prayer is different. I'm going to read it in Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus is using a figurative expression, this cup. The cup in the Old Testament signified God's anger, God's wrath and hatred against sin and injustice. You know that feeling when you see something wrong or you hear something that is just wrong happening in the world and you, you feel that righteous anger, this shouldn't be. Well, the cup represents God's Righteous anger that has been built up over millennia for all of human sin. And Jesus in the garden is bent over, hunched over. He's staring into the cup. He's aware that in this cup that he will have to drink is the anger and wrath of God. And he staggers. Three times he prays, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours, he said. And each time he prays and goes back to the disciples, what have they done? They're asleep. He says, could you not wait? <laughs> could you not watch one hour? 
And then the final time he prays, he goes back to them, arises and says, the time is fulfilled. Matthew 26 verse 47 explains the next part. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So this is the religious elite, the guys who work in the temple. It would be like myself, Brendan, Patrick and Dave conspiring to kill Jesus, the leaders. They send soldiers with Judas. Verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And then verse 56. All this was taking place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. After this, Jesus is taken and interrogated by these religious leaders, by the men. They're trying to find a way to put him to death. They can't just do it. They need a reason. Pilate, the, the Roman governor of the, town, of the city, need, is the one that can put people to death. They can't do it. So they need a reason, but they need to find a reason in the Bible for putting God to death. And they're finding it really difficult, as you could imagine. And this is how the scene plays out. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. So that's the top dog. Where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following with him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Imagine this scene. These leaders stealing Jesus in the night with a secret trial. While his hands are blindfolded, his hands are bound and his eyes blindfolded, and they strike him, spit on his face, sentence him to death. And meanwhile, Jesus' closest friend, most likely, or second closest, Peter's out in the courtyard denying that he even knows Jesus exists. 
It's all such a dark and horrendous scene. Good Friday. It's not sounding too good. They take Jesus to Pilate and Pilate can't really find a reason why he should put him to death. But Pilate's becoming a little bit afraid because the religious leaders are starting to stir the crowd. It's now Friday morning and the crowd is getting stirred up by these religious leaders and and he's worried that there's going to be a riot in the city. He's worried that the stability of Jerusalem is going to be crushed because of this weird healer man. And so Pilate calls to the crowd. They've gathered. Now, this is Friday morning. Crowd in the, the court. Matthew twenty-seven fifteen says this. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they'd mocked him, They stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Matthew 27, 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a scroll, Skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, see how quickly it passes over that? When they had crucified him. They don't go into much detail, but you may have seen the pictures. It, it, it's a bit of a process with nails and limbs stretched out. 
When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests who were with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him, the two thieves next to him, also reviled him in the same way. This is the the story and the picture of Good Friday. Jesus now naked, brutalized and tortured, completely shamed. For three hours he hangs in broad daylight in front of all to see, pinned up, forsaken by man. Jesus was forsaken by everyone he knew and everyone he didn't know. They all desert him, from the highest in the land, Pilate, to the lowest criminal on the cross next to him, from those furthest away from him that he'd never met, to those closest to him like Peter and Judas. We need to be able to see all of this to kind of get the picture into frame. But There's also another reason why we need to slow down on this point of being forsaken by man. Because it's easy to look back 2,000 years ago I can't, and say, I can't believe they did that. How could they do that to him? He was so righteous and good. How could they drive nails into him? How could they spit on his face? How could they beat him and mock him? How could they desert him? Yet, the reality of what the Bible teaches is about us is that if you and I were there, we would have joined in the torture. You see, in this whole scene, my face and your face is actually in the crowd. I was reading this story with Evie, my daughter, and you know we were gasping at the shock of it. And she, she, was, she was trying to say, but we wouldn't have done that, would we? I said, darling, actually... If it wasn't for the grace of God in our life, that would have been us doing it to Jesus. And for us sitting here this evening, that would have been you. It's hard to imagine, you know, in our nice shirts and clothes and everything here, that we would have participated in this awful scene. Yet the reality is, is that we know we would have, because all you have to do is look at your own life so far. How many days, how many months, how many years have you forsaken Jesus already? By not loving him, adoring him, living for him, obeying him in all of your life. 
Our face is in the crowd too. We would have been maybe like Judas for money. Peter, because we feared man. The disciples who feared their life. The priests and the Pharisees who didn't want to lose their power. Or Pilate who didn't want to lose his position. Or the guards who just liked to inflict pain. Whoever we were in the story, our face is in the crowd somewhere. So for the first three hours of Jesus' crucifixion, he's in broad daylight, forsaken by man, looked upon with hatred by all, shamed beyond recognition. Yet then we get to verse 45. And it reads this. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Douglas Webster says this. At the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. At the death of the Son of God, there was darkness at noon. Why? Well, now we're coming to the deeper meaning of Easter and Good Friday. Point two. Forsaken by God. See, when the darkness came over the land, for three hours, the sun lost its light. For three hours, you could imagine the fear and the confusion that would have been happening on that hill. The one that they'd been tortured, suddenly everything's turning because the world is turning in on him. They can't see him anymore. There's a gloom and a darkness happening. And then after three hours of this pain and this torture, of him hanging in darkness, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Jesus say these words? It'd be tempting to think, and it would be obvious from everything we just read, that it was the shame, the pain, the embarrassment, the abandonment by friends. Was he crying out in anguish and pain? Was this unexpected misery? And he's crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? What are you doing? Is he accusing God? Is he angry at God? Have you ever experienced times in your life that you have felt that kind of feeling? Like, what on earth are you doing? Why have you abandoned me, Lord? I thought you meant to be for me. Is that what's happening here? It's actually not. You see, these words are old words. These words are actually words that were written by a psalmist, an ancient songwriter, a thousand years beforehand. You see, when Jesus is crying these words out on the cross, the darkest words you could imagine a man saying to God, let alone the Son of God saying to God the Father, he's actually quoting an old psalm. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, which reads like this. Losing my glasses. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You see, if you read through the rest of this psalm, you'll see that this psalm only makes sense in light of all that's already happened. And it only makes sense that Jesus would quote these words because this whole song was written actually about him. If you read through the rest of the psalm, if you look at verses 6 through 8, it says this, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue, for he delights in him. Isn't that exactly what was already said to him? Verses 12 through 18. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, all these things have been fulfilled in all the ways that Jesus was forsaken by man that we saw. They were all fulfilled according to this song that was written a thousand years beforehand. From 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. in broad daylight, he was forsaken by man. But now we come back to verse 1 and the lights go off on the world. And he cries this cry because now he's been not only forsaken by man, he's been forsaken by God. You see, the key is in the darkness. At At noon, the darkness comes. And in the Bible, darkness represents judgment. In the Bible, darkness represents God's judgment coming over people. It represents death. It represents the absence of God. And so when the world goes dark at 12 p.m., that's an indication that God is withdrawing himself from his son. It's an indication that God is actually abandoning his son. And after three hours of this abandonment, Jesus then makes this cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a question. He's he's making a statement. You have forsaken me. He's quoting this psalm to show this was no accident. Jesus is not crying out from the cross because he's like, I don't know what's happening. He's saying, I know exactly what's happening. This was the plan. Every single detail has been fulfilled for this to take place. You see, in this moment, in the darkness, this is what is happening. All of the sin of the world is being placed on him. And all of God's hatred and anger for that sin, for all who would be saved, is being placed on him. And so the world loses its light. 
Jesus is hanging on the cross experiencing hell. Imagine that. All the sin of the world. Galatians chapter 5 is a good list of a bunch of sins. It says this, The works of the flesh are evident. This is all that was placed on Jesus. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. All being pinned to him on the cross. Elsewhere, the Bible describes this moment like this. In Peter, 1 Peter 2, it says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin. John Stott says it like this, Our sins blotted out the sunshine of his father's face. On the cross, in this dark moment, he's drinking the cup that he feared in Gethsemane. All our brokenness, our depravity, from the slightest infringement to the most disgusting of our perversities, he drinks it all and in full. And the light of the world goes out. You see, Jesus had always had perfect intimacy with God. He is God. He's perfect and sinless, righteous and holy. He's so unlike us. He's so unlike me. He's so unlike you. He's never, ever sinned. And God was always with him, but now in this moment, God leaves him. God abandons him, and he hangs, forsaken by God. And finally, in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died in silence. No help, no deliverance, no angels, nothing. On his own. When Jesus was baptized, God called out from heaven. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. When he was born, angels came. But now, in the dark, he hangs his head and breathes no more. See, all the physical pain of crucifixion pales in comparison to the spiritual anguish he experienced on the cross for your sin and my sin. On the cross, Jesus Christ is forsaken by God. So why is Good Friday good? Well, now we arrive at the whole point of the message. Once we see the bleakness and darkness of sin the beauty and the glory of grace can become even greater. Here's the point of Easter in a sentence from this passage. 
Jesus was forsaken by God for us so that we might be accepted. Jesus was forsaken by God, abandoned by God for me, for you, so that you can be accepted by him. You see, Jesus did not die for sin in general, but for the particular sins of all who would follow him. He died for us, for the people sitting next to you in the room. Their actual record of sin was pinned against Jesus on the cross. Your actual record of sin, all the sins that people have seen and haven't seen, are on him on the cross. And God hates that sin so much that he turns his face away from his beloved son so that one day he can turn his face toward you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. He was forsaken that you might be forgiven. He was abandoned that you might be accepted. For my particular sins and your particular actual sins that you've committed. Let's read those verses again in Peter and 2 Corinthians. This is the gospel. This is Easter. This is Good Friday. He himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Friends, by his wounds... You have been healed. Only because he was forsaken can you be forgiven. Only because the father turned his face away and poured all of his anger upon his son can you be healed. One hymn writer puts it like this. I can't do much better than quote this. May you experience just this, the beauty of these words and understand this. This is the reality for you if you trust in Christ. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. In this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see the ugliness of sin. There's no excusing our sin. Jesus had to be abandoned for it. It had to be placed on him. And we see the majesty of his grace and love. So the question I want you to think about tonight if Jesus was forsaken by God for us that we might be accepted, are you accepted 
by God this evening. Not the person next to you, not someone else, just you. Are you actually accepted by God this evening? Would the Father turn his face from you or would he turn his face to you? This is the all-important question. This is what makes Good Friday good, depending on your answer. Now, you may say, yes, I'm accepted by God because of this, this, or that, or because I, I was born into a, a religious family, or, you know, I, I'm a good enough person, I'm a moral person, I attend church on Christmas and Easter, or I do certain good things, I give away some of my money, or some of my family members are believers, so surely I'll get sneaked in with them on the way. No. There's no other way to be accepted than to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Your particular sins had to be placed particularly on that one so that you, in particular, can be accepted by God. Don't minimize your sin. You can't get in any other way. The only way to get in and to be accepted is to confront the ugliness of it all and come to Jesus and say, please forgive me. To say to the Father, thank you for abandoning your son for me. I want in on that. Are you accepted by God this evening? You may say, I cannot be accepted by God. You do not know what I have done. You do not know how evil I have been in my life. You do not know how far gone I am. Let me tell you this. You can never out-sin the gospel. You see, Jesus was pinned to the cross and all the shame and ugliness of your sin was placed on him. There is nothing left over. By his wounds you are healed. If you are not coming to God this evening because you think you're too bad, that's actually the requirement to come to God this evening is to realize how bad you are. The only way you can be accepted is to face the reality and come to him and say, please forgive me for all the wrong that I have done. Well, you may think, I can't be accepted by God tonight because of what's been done to me. Some people have been hurt, abused, shamed in multiple ways, and they think, God could never love me. I'm unclean. I'm unlovable. Jesus hangs on the cross naked and mocked and brutalized and whipped and tortured to take away your shame. If you think you can't come to God because you're unlovable, know this, that he experienced total shame to take away yours. He was disgraced to take away your disgrace. It was all on him. So you can still come to him and he will cover your shame. Are you accepted by God this evening? If yes, then tonight is Good Friday, is it not? Tonight is Good Friday because your sins have been washed away. Nothing will ever stand against you. Tonight is Good Friday because as you look around this room, you'll see people who their particular sins were actually taken away by Christ on the cross. And you can rejoice and think, there's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one. Their sins were paid for. 
You can think about your children, your friends and your family. You can think they will not experience hell because he was forsaken by God. Hallelujah. That is Good Friday. But if you can't honestly say, I'm accepted by God this evening, here's what you need to do. You need to follow the forsaken one. You need to repent of your sin and come to him and say, like what I've already mentioned, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the only requirement. And if you do that, then today will be Good Friday for you. If you confess your sins, you can get baptized, maybe on Sunday even, and you will know, you will come out of that water knowing, I am accepted. And you won't need acceptance from others because you have it already completely, fully with God. We could go all night explaining all the goodness and the greatness of Friday. It's Friday. Thank God it's Good Friday because of the fact that Jesus was forsaken by God for us so that we might be accepted. He was alone so that we might never be alone. He cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I will never have to make a similar cry. He was cut off from the Father so that we can boldly say, Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. He was abandoned that we might be accepted. My friends, are you particularly accepted by God this evening? If you are, rejoice with everything that is in you. And if you're not, May I request that you spend significant time considering, is this true? Because if it is, there is no better news in all the earth. And there will be no better Friday in all of your life than if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this evening. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we're aware that as we sit here listening to a long message and reading long scriptures, that our hearts can grow dull. Lord, would you again refresh us with this reality, this incredible good news? God, we want to thank you that you forsook your son for us. Who are we that you would do it for us, Lord? But thank you that you have so that we might be accepted. This horrible cry that you cried, Lord Jesus, was for us. Lord, would you fill us with joy and peace and hope? Would you rid us of our shame would you rid us of our fear? Would you rid us of our guilt? And would you renew our minds to enjoy you again this Easter? 
In Jesus' name, amen.